0: The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips.
1: Hi. Hi, and thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. In the wake of the Me Too movement and the upsurge in both feminist and men's rights activism, traditional masculinity has become the topic of impassioned debate. Does society dictate what masculinity should be? Is masculinity, by definition, harmful to women? Is it harmful to men? Do men of different generations define masculinity differently? How would most men today define themselves in terms of masculinity? Our guest and expert today is psychologist and author Dr. Andrew Smiler, who will be drawing upon his new and important book, Is Masculinity Toxic? A Primer for the 21st Century. Andrew Smiler is a licensed therapist and an expert on boys, men, and masculinity. He holds a master's in clinical psychology and a doctorate in developmental psychology. In addition to his new book, Dr. Smiler is the author of Dating and Sex, A Guide for the 21st Century Teen Boy, and Challenging Casanova, Beyond the Stereotype of the Promiscuous Young Male, both of which he discussed in previous shows on Psych Up Live. He's also authored or co-authored more than 25 academic articles and chapters. Dr. Andrew Smiler, it is with great pleasure that I welcome you back to Psych Up Live.
2: Thank you, Suzanne, it's always a pleasure to be here.
1: (laughs) Okay, let's start with the question, what is masculinity?
2: That's a great question, um, and, and I'm going to define it in two ways. The the first way, which sounds really simple, is that masculinity is what a culture says that its boys and men should be, or how they should behave. That's the simple answer. The complicated answer is that what masculinity, even here in the U.S., tells boys and men to do and how they should behave has changed consistently throughout our history.
1: Okay. What are some of the changes if we were to look at how it's evolved, Andrew?
2: So so I'm going to use three <clears throat> kind of moments in time to answer that question. I'm going to talk about masculinity right around 1900 and masculinity around, say, 1950 or the early 60s and where we're at today. Okay. And if you look at where we were around 1900, it was a very different nation back then. Most people lived in rural areas. Most people worked for family farms or other small businesses. We were just on the verge of the industrial age and the age of mass anything. And, you know, most people didn't travel more than say five or 10 miles from their home in any given week. At that point in time, Masculinity is really kind of what the Boy Scouts tell us today that masculinity is. And the Boy Scouts were founded around that. So it's about being thrifty and reverent and honest and loyal. Um, And a lot of characteristics that we might think about as what it means to be a good man or a good person. It's about doing the right thing. It's about, even then, it was about having kind of a personal code of honor, about fitting into your community and being a part of your community, And over the first half of the 20th century, as we became industrialized, and as we became urbanized, and as we uh, finished up a couple of decades of mass immigration, um, our nation was very different. And we placed a lot more emphasis on conformity and and we've all seen and and some of us may remember all of those images of men on subways or on buses on their way to work and they're all wearing pretty much the same black suit and black hat and black tie.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, And it was very much about living in and living this kind of middle class lifestyle in or around the city in the suburbs and it was about what you can buy and now not what you can make. And it was about working your way up the corporate ladder and working for some big corporation. And then if we jump ahead to today... Like it's yet again different. Today, we talk about men being violent and we accept violence in ways that we didn't in the 1950s or 1900s as part of masculinity. We talk about men being promiscuous today and expecting men to be promiscuous today in ways we didn't 50 years, 70 years ago, or 120 years ago. Um, we talk about men today, and especially the kind of the current generation of fathers, as being more emotionally expressive than their parents and their grandparents from that 1950s era were. Um, And so we see changes in a number of different ways. So, you know, when we talk about how has masculinity changed, it's it's pretty complicated, and there's lots of different pieces, and they're all moving.
1: Mm. So with respect to that, the... Are you sort of suggesting that the violence and promiscuity that we have seen over time is even more pronounced in the more recent decades? I'm I'm trying to put it together with the...
2: Absolutely. If we think about what American society looked like, and again, I'll start with 1900, um, mostly rural, mostly pastoral, violence and kind of you know fighting um like we expected boys to do a little scuffling with each other whatnot but like the worst you might get is a black eye or a chipped tooth um and even and that was all very clearly frowned upon by the adults unless it was boxing or something else that was sanctioned then we go through two world wars and we get to the 1950s and there's a lot of violence, and it's very publicly not tolerated. We don't tolerate the mafia or the Cosa Nostra. Um, and and all of our our mechanisms of government, our mass media in that time are very clear that that's not allowed and not acceptable. We In the 1950s, we have a lot of adult concern about so-called juvenile delinquents. These kids, mostly boys, who are staying out late and who are fighting and starting to fight with things like knives and guns. <coughs> And their elders, the folks who had fought in World War II and World War I, and who had, you know, who had been home for the folks who came home, it, these people saw violence. They saw war. And they were not tolerant of their their young boys being violent at home. Um, and, and lots of government money went into that, and, and we still have that, a lot of work about juvenile delinquents and how to prevent delinquency today. Um, and, then, and then something strange happens. In, in the 1970s and 1980s, we get movies like The Godfather and First Blood and Rambo. And all of a sudden, not exactly all of a sudden, but the culture shifts. And there's much greater tolerance for and acceptance of men as kind of inherently violent. Um, and while we still don't like crime... We watch a lot of movies about bad guys these days, and we watch lots of movies about violent people, and we've come to accept that, hmm, maybe most guys are violent, and we don't really question that assumption in ways that, you know, our my grandparents or parents in the 1950s would have questioned that. It's
1: so interesting, the question of permission for violence. So one man who grew up, or he said his dad grew up... Um, at a time when the mobs were pretty prevalent on the East Coast, he said you could be a mobster, a priest, or a cop. Those were your, <laughs> those were your options. Right. And and so it's interesting because you wonder if, in that, in fact, the wars turned, sort of turned a switch because although they were not so accepting of violence in the home, there was a kind of in awe feeling, and many, as you say, had gone to war, they had been up close to violence, but we could even go back. Those people who say it's a given, it's almost uh, people are genetically wired a certain way. If we go back to the gladiators, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we see also a society that's, that's roaring and clapping and now people are fighting in cages and all kinds of things. So it's, it's, the question becomes the nature nurture thing and all the cultural structure right. in terms of what will permit
2: right absolutely and and i would i would challenge your language it's not so much nature and nurture because you can't have one without the other right. it's really right. about how they interact and what yeah. does a culture permit and what does a culture encourage um, you know that that allows kind of more or less of those inherent violent tendencies to come out.
1: And sometimes they've taken a very accepted form, like uh, football or certain games um, that become violent or end or might might harm someone. But they are certainly a piece of the culture, certainly in our country in, in certain parts even more. But generally, because of the TV and um ESPN, everybody's everybody's into it. Right. So the so the question then comes and it's made I don't know if it was the prompt for your book. So what about the Me Too movement? And that is, did the Me Too movement throw into question violence and promiscuity? Did it give men, most men or men of certain generations, a pause as to wait a minute, what's going on? What's your sense about that?
2: Um, so there, there's a couple of questions in there. Okay. Uh, I'm going to start with, I think the the Me Too movement as kind of dovetails with a number of um, blog sites and some journalism about toxic masculinity. Um, and and kind of in the, the media, uh, in the press, um, the term toxic masculinity has been used for, I think about, seven to ten years now and Me Too is a little bit more recent than that mm-hmm. um, but there's kind of this whole series or this whole line of, of articles and this line of increasing consciousness in our culture about the ways that masculinity has the potential to harm others and, and in particular uh, within the press and mainstream culture we tend to focus on the way that masculinity harms women. Um, <coughs> But I think that that's an important conversation. I don't think attention to masculinity is particularly new. Um, I think we had this again, say, 20 years ago or 15 years ago, when all of a sudden we were all talking about metrosexuals. And we had this in the 70s with the rise of the so-called sensitive new age guy. Right. Um, we had it, I referenced the 50s, with discussion of juvenile delinquents, and, and for the folks who were alive then and who were paying attention to this issue, everyone was clear that juvenile delinquents really was a, referred to just boys, a particular subsection of boys. Right. But there, there was no doubt that this was really about boys. Um, so it's not exactly a new conversation, Although we do have some new terminology and the focal points, I think, have shifted.
1: Well, when I asked men, as I said, I've been asking men, has the Me Too movement caused you to rethink through masculinity or your own definition of it? The kind of answers that I got were, well, the Me Too movement made power and dominance over women in the workplace unacceptable and it was going on for a long time and it's not necessarily going to stop men from doing it if they can get away with it one man <laughs> said I, one man said it could it goes on in the home but it maybe is not going to get played out so much in the workplace someone else said if you think you're going to go to jail for something it's a deterrent but across the board they all sort of said the alpha male thing. There'll always be those men mm-hmm. for whom their definition of self has to do with dominance and power and even violence. When I one man said, I said, "How do you define masculinity?" And this is a man in his seventies, and he said, um, "It's about m- my status in relation to other men." Mm-hmm. Um, and. And so the question becomes, if sleeping with 20 women on a weekend improves your status in some groups, that may happen. If being violent to your girlfriend uh, is going to give you some sort of status, maybe that's possible too. But people sort of were suggesting you're never going to get rid of a, a a core group that's going to hold on to masculinity in terms of violence and power.
2: Absolutely. I and mean, these are all great points. One of the points that I make in the book is that our current definition of masculinity, which, and, and I'll use your term, focuses on being an alpha male. Um, it, this definition is really oriented towards teaching boys and men to seek power and how to use it. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not about being a good man. It's about being a real man. And a real man has power. And if what, you know, what you're oriented towards is power or status, kind of its its cousin there, then, you know, as as some of these guys said that you're quoting, you go after the, the power or the status and you use it in whatever ways you think you can get away with. Mm. Um, and if that means treating women a certain way or treating men a certain way then that's what you do. and But it's about getting power and getting the status that comes with it. And and in most of American culture today, that also includes getting wealth or getting fame um, because those are other ways to get power and get status. And and they yeah. tend to all go together.
1: Yeah, privilege, et cetera. Well, right. the other question I asked is, you might need not be someone who defines yourself by power and violence, but would you step in as a bystander <clears throat> if you saw a man being violent to a woman, and um, one man said, "I would assume it was a it was a couple issue," and then I said, "Well, what if it was a man being violent in some way to a child?" And he said, "I would st- I would definitely step in." Someone else actually gave me a story. He mm-hmm. said he was with <clears throat> a woman and and his own child, and they saw a big. Uh, I'll use a stereotype, biker guy, (laughs) screaming at a little four-year-old girl. Right. And he said, the thought crossed my mind, if I go there, that man will kill me. Yeah. So what happened? The woman with him went over to the biker. And the biker immediately stopped doing what he was doing. And and I said to him, (laughs) you know what? I think she might have had more power than you had. He said, I actually think she might have. He said, "I'm not thrilled. I didn't go, but I don't think a biker is going to start attacking a woman." But it's very—it's an interesting story about bystanders. Andrew.
2: Oh, ab- absolutely, and you know, as as guys, part of the function of masculinity—and you had referenced this earlier—masculinity helps guys compare themselves to other guys and know where they stand and you want to be the alpha male, not a beta. At least that's, that's what our culture says. And that's what our culture reinforces. If, if your guy there goes up and interjects himself and, and challenges this biker dude, then, you know, when, when your authority is challenged and you think you're the alpha, you fight back, you stand, you, you know, you mm-hmm. stand your ground or go on the offensive. And you know, if if, if you're scared of a biker dude, you're scared of a biker dude, what what that biker dude might happen, might do, then that does give you pause and a reason to perhaps not step up. But you know, stereotypes allow the woman to do it. So <clears throat> it's interesting.
1: Sure it it's interesting in the Green Dot program, which is a program about teaching um, young people how to stop sexual violence. Bystanders are trained not only in techniques, but that they will always intervene together, two mm-hmm. on one, which mm-hmm. would uh, which would allow um, a more likelihood that they will step up. So yeah. it, it's it's really interesting. Do you think? And and it's something that you know we can pick up also in the next section. In general, though, even though they were all saying, all well, the people I asked, this alpha guy is going to always be there. I think there's more openness to allowing men to define themselves a little bit more personally they want than they want to. Men seem to be open to the metrosexual or people, LGBTQ friends of theirs. So it seems like there is less threat almost to the idea that you can define yourself and you can welcome into your club men of different definitions of self.
2: Absolutely. And the one thing I'll say now, and we'll come back to this after the break, is that only a small percentage of men can be the alpha. And what we see on psychological surveys is that most guys don't really buy into this definition of masculinity, but there are enough who do, maybe 10 or 15% of the population, that the image and the stereotype uh, persist and are maintained.
1: Okay, we're going to take a break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. Today we're speaking with Dr. Andrew Smiler. He is the author of the important new book, Is Masculinity Toxic? A Primer for the 21st Century. Stay with us. We have much more to speak about.
0: Streaming live. The leader in internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. We all know that today our country is in many ways run by vested interests which have accumulated large amounts of power for themselves and at our expense. But this can be changed by recognizing the problems and then by adopting libertarian solutions to address them. Tune in to All Rise, The Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. Judge Gray and his guests will discuss the problem areas of today and then present solutions that result in a better world for ourselves and our children. Tune in Fridays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. barry now presents his gifts to others as host of the joy of living all you need to do is tune in listen live every tuesday at 10 a.m pacific time and 1 p.m eastern on the voice america variety channel think you've seen everything there is to see in online television let us surprise you visit VoiceAmerica.tv today for sports health business and more on demand 24 7.
1: Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Andrew Smiler, the author of Is Masculinity Toxic? A Prima for the 21st Century. And we're looking at different definitions of self that men embrace. And we were just looking at what was called the alpha male. But, um, Andrew, you also referred to, I don't know if they're they're, um, actually the same definition, the man box definition
2: Yes. Thank you. Um, So, man box is a a fairly new term and it's a popular press term. It really refers to kind of our current uh, stereotype about masculinity and and the way boys and men are supposed to act. So, the man box or stereotype encourages boys and men to be invulnerable, and whether they do that by not showing their feelings or whether they do that by being aggressive and fighting and some of the things we were discussing earlier. Um, it also encourages men to be risk-taking or adventurous, and that's really a broad term, but any kind of risk. Um, the man box encourages men to be promiscuous and to have lots and lots of partners. Um, it also encourages men to seek status and power and and kind of try to become the alpha male, and so things like ambition are explicitly uh, prescribed for men. They're supposed you're supposed to try to be the best, um, and this is our yeah. current stereotype. As, as I mentioned earlier, it's changed quite a bit over the years.
1: Now, one of the things your the title of um, your second chapter asks the question about male masculine power or harm, particularly how that. Ma- mailbox definition actually harms or is harmful to men themselves. Let's talk a little bit about that.
2: Sure, thank you. Um, it's a, a really important topic for me because one of the things that kind of we all know here in the U.S. is that on average men die five years younger than women um, but we don't talk about this as a health disparity. We don't really have a whole lot of public pressure groups or advocacy groups that walk around all the time saying, men die five years younger, we need to do something about this. Like we all just kind of accept this. Um, And while I'm here, I'm gonna plug the folks at Movember um, as we go into November. They have their grow a mustache campaign Movember, um, and they do their work on raising awareness of men's suicide and prostate cancer and testicular cancer. Great. Um, this is great stuff, and this is these are some of the things that contribute to that five-year gap in lifespan. We know that men and boys. Um, take a lot more risks than girls and women do. So if you look at the statistics on who dies in car accidents or who's more likely to have car accident or be engaged in risky driving, it's you know boys and young men in particular over girls by like a three-to-one or four-to-one ratio. Um, we know that in the U.S., men commit about 90% of homicides and they're 75% of homicide victims. So they die as a result of homicide three times more often than women do. Um, We have similar numbers for suicide here in the U.S. Men die by suicide about two and a half times more often. Um, And these are real problems. And part of it is efforts to obtain status by, say, taking risks and showing off and therefore being able to get 80 bazillion followers on YouTube Mm -hmm. Um, or men in engaging in violence in order to prove some kind of point. We know that one of the biggest reasons for homicide is some kind of threat to somebody's honor, um, especially when it comes to kind of, you know, keep your hands off my girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And typically they're my girlfriend, not my boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Um, These are, in their way, unnecessary deaths. These are not deaths because people are serving as first responders or in the military. Um, And we You know, um, suicide, which is about, you know, which is by definition killing yourself, often the result of feeling stuck and feeling unable and whether that's unable to, you know, get yourself into a good mood or unable to accomplish some important goals like being financially independent or, you know, having lost it all in in the latest stock market crash. Um, We again see guys taking their own lives at much higher rates than women.
1: Well, one of the interesting thing is whereas more women make suicide attempts, more men actually complete the suicide attempt. Um, it's so interesting that has to do with owning guns and it has to do with the fact that they very, very rarely have sought help. And in, uh, yeah. way, way back in an earlier show on a, a different channel... Um, I had Dr. Marion Legato on, and the name of her book was Why Men Die First, Andrew. And I'm her, a- and sure. she said they don't go to doctors until right. they're 65 years old. <laughs> women, get, women get into the system because of um, pregnancy and childbirth, but men, they don't go. So there's no baseline.
2: Right.
1: So the chances of the unexpected heart attack or the uh, diagnosis, it's not going to be picked up. Uh, in terms of <clears throat> overall care, that's why I, I love that you plug the um, plug the um, group that's really pushing for men. The uh-huh. other su- the other suicide piece that I've seen in terms of even working with uh, uniform services a great deal after nine eleven is men show depression differently. Uh-huh. That is, they'll present it as anger, and they will do more risk taking. Right. And so the chances of putting themselves in harm's way is really enormous, much greater than with women.
2: Absolutely. Um, and and kind of on the professional side of my life, there are folks who are really arguing that in the next update of the DSM, kind of the Bible of mental disorders, there really needs to be um, two different sets of diagnostic criteria for depression, a set for kind of female-typed and a set for male-typed depression because there are… Um because the data suggests that depression really does look different in men, the way that you were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to go back to one thing you just said though. The, again, here in the US, the CDC statistics tell us that men are more lethal with every type of suicide. Um, it is not just about uh, using guns for suicide. Men are more lethal with hanging, with yes. post with with all types.
1: Mm -hmm. and in I've volunteered at times for groups for suicide survivors and notwithstanding the amount of pain of losing a partner or a father or a brother is the mystification of but he didn't say anything but you know so it's You know, the intergenerational legacy of suicide is enormous. Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned that.
2: One of the things that that men really struggle with is that, you know, in general, we are taught to be doers and not so much feelers. And we don't really raise boys and men to pay as much attention to that part of their world. Um, And we teach them to get the job done, which means that you just need to be good enough to get it done. So you don't really need to take care of your health to get your health to a good place, just good enough. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, we, we have these um, these memes and and quotations and whatnot, like, but a lot of men guys buy into the idea that you shouldn't complain, you should just fix it. Right. And just so do it. Learn to live with the pain.
1: Well, one thing you had in the book, and I started thinking of it in terms of bullying. So if a male child comes home and he's been bullied, uh, the father might say, what are you going to do about it? Right. If a female child comes home and is bullied, someone's going to say, how do you feel about it? Yeah. So the, the, and, and having worked with, and we even had shows on bullying, because the kid knew that's what the father was going to say, it was like, what am I going to do about it? I, right. I can't face these people. So it, it boxes men in to a action expectation that really brings with it a certain amount of despair.
2: Yeah, absolutely. and I, I like this idea of action expectation. Um, that's a, I'm going to use that term. Thank you. Um, but it does, right? If, if you are unable to solve the problem by yourself because you can't beat up the bullies because there's four of them and they're all bigger than you or whatever – and you can't really get help from your parents either because they, they're going to tell you, to, you know, what are you going to do about it and, and they expect you to solve it by yourself or because you have bought into the stereotype that says guys should be able to defend themselves and guys should be able to solve problems on their own, then you're kind of out of options because you have a puzzle that you can't solve and for which you're not allowed to get any help. Um, right. And you, when we read some of the the backstories and especially some of the notes from teens who have committed suicide, uh, especially boy male teens who have committed suicide, that you can see the outlines of the mail, man box very clearly in, in some of those notes.
1: Now, one of the other things that um, I've seen and uh, someone recently read about it in terms of Central America and the number of asylum seekers who have come, who are women, who have been fleeing from domestic violence and close-to-death experiences is the connection between humiliation and violence. And that is, if a man is in a situation where he feels he cannot get status in any other way, he might be in a culture for, for which dominance and even violence toward women is a way to get status. And it's unbelievably dangerous and maybe less so here in, in the States. But to read about it is to really see that connection.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the things that we know that, that does happen here that happens elsewhere, um, a lot of people, at least in moments, are able to bolster their own self-esteem by putting someone else down. Right. So, if, if you're that guy that you can't get any status anywhere else, you know, at least you can go, quote unquote, at least you can go home and beat your wife up, mm-hmm. boss your wife around. So, at least there's some place where you're not on the bottom of the pile and that that provides some way to get some self-esteem. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, now, I was just going to say, now, we, we want to say, you know... Um, that not all men, of course, are like this. Right. But, the que- but the question is for fathers and teachers and coaches, um, what she- the message you send plays a very big part in how these young men are going to define themselves.
2: Absolutely. Um, and and the cultural messages. One of my mm-hmm. favorite kind of bad examples in this moment uh, is the TV show Two and a Half Men. Mm-hmm. Uh, follows yes. the... The so-called adventures of brothers Charlie and Alan. Um, you know, Charlie. You know, Charlie is this really kind of stereotypical guy. Fits in the man box. Um, promiscuous. Kind of magically successful. We never really see him working hard. Um, right. It's true. You know, he writes <laughs> jingles and whatnot. And Charlie gets almost all the laugh lines, and almost all those laugh lines come at Alan's expense. Yes. But Alan is the, by all mean, by, by all standards, he's a good guy. He takes care of his son. He's nice to everybody else. He, we hear about him going to work and trying real hard. Um, and, and I ask people, like, you know, who, which of these guys would you want to spend a weekend with and which one of these people would you want to spend the next 40 years with? And, and the answers, you know, pretty sh- diverge pretty sharply there. Mm-hmm. But Alan's the butt of the joke. Yes. You know, Alan's mm-hmm. not the, I mean, and, and even the Emmy people will tell you that Charlie Sheen as Charlie was the star mm-hmm. and John Cryer as Alan was the supporting actor. Mm-hmm. So we're very clear about kind of whose show this is and who we're lifting up and who we're stepping on.
1: Mm hmm. Mm, that's really interesting. It brings to us to the question of men and interpersonal relationships <clears throat> and whether these definitions of masculinity impair men's relationships with other men and men's relationships with women.
2: Yeah, that and that's a great topic. Thank you. Um, and I'm going to stay on kind of men's relationships with men here. Because men are taught, are encouraged in lots of ways and rewarded in lots of ways, for being the alpha male, um, those are the guys who get most of the cultural benefits. they That's, quote, unquote, the easiest path to to fame and money and power um, here in the U.S. that tends to be professional athletes, although um, some actors are in there as well, especially guys who tend to play more violent roles. Maybe a little bit below them with not quite, and, and we might call them... Um, I'll follow sociologist R. W. Cannell's labels and we'll call that the hegemonic form and these are guys that are really adhering to the hegemonic version of masculinity. A little bit down, not quite getting as many cultural benefits, maybe not as much money or not as much status. We have other guys who are doing masculinity and fitting into the man box reasonably well. We have, like, the high-powered businessmen. You know, we all know who Mark Zuckerberg is. We don't look at Mark Zuckerberg the way we might look at, say, some professional athlete or someone like Vin Diesel. But he's still doing the thing, and he's still got lots of power and lots of money. Um, And we might talk about him as having a complicit version of masculinity, where he's really still supporting the man box and getting a lot of those benefits, but not all of them.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then we have some other versions. We have um, a marginalized version. And here we might think of kind of the stereotypical nerd, not the guy who has Mark Zuckerberg's level of fame and power, but, you know, the guy with the bad social skills and the bad glasses and the pocket protector. Um, still kind of maybe trying to live up to the standards of the man box, but really unable to do that but not challenging the status quo. Um, And as a child of the eighties, I will go back to the movie, revenge of the nerds as as (laughs) easy reference there or the breakfast club, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we also have versions of masculinity that canal talks about as subordinated or sorry, as, as marginalized. Um, And these are versions of masculinity that our culture explicitly puts on the outside. Um, Today, homosexuality has become, and particularly male homosexuality, has become accepted in ways that 50 years ago it really was not. Mm -hmm. Um, We no longer take kids away from gay men. Um, We no longer arrest them for being gay the way that we did at the time of the Stonewall riot 50 years ago. People still make a case, and I and I think that they have some real credibility here for black masculinity as being marginalized, and and that ties into things like the Black Lives Matter movement mm-hmm. and the way that, um, you know, black men are incarcerated at notably higher rates than than any other ethnic group in the U.S. About right. forty one, right. um, You know, and there's a real suggestion that. To be black and male in America is to, by definition, be on the outside, unless you can make it as maybe an athlete or some kind of musical performer or entertainer that gives you some amount of cachet, but still not necessarily full acceptance. Mm -hmm.
1: So you're really suggesting that within the overall male culture, different men have more access to the expected mailbox. Uh, alpha male position. Uh, Yeah. Now, across the groupings, what would you say, you know, that people compare men and women in terms of their friend relationships, for instance. So would you say that you think women become more emotionally intimate with their friends than men do?
2: Absolutely. Um, There's this kind of classic finding in the research, and, and this has persisted for decades now, that when men get together, they tend to do things side by side where they're not making eye contact, whereas women tend to do things face to face, and eye contact is very important. Um, iconically, and I use this slide in some of my presentations, if you think about a TV show like Sex in the City, and the iconic image is those four women sitting around a table at some restaurant talking to each other. But then if you go to a movie like The Big Lebowski, the scene where the three guys are talking to each other, they're all sitting at the bar at the bowling alley, kind of looking at the TV behind the bar, and then the conversation goes literally sideways over the shoulder from one guy to the next.
1: But you know, it makes me wonder, and we can pick this up on the other side of the break, I'm no longer sure that means those men less connected emotionally with each other than the women who are face to face. I mean, I've even described the differences you just did, you know, on other shows with other writers. But the fact is, it may be that it may doesn't, it doesn't look that way. But in their own way, I think more and more men are are intimate with other men. I think they're risking it more. And I, I actually think I'm not sure that two men fishing together don't feel very strongly about each other, although they express it differently than women would.
2: And I will agree with that, and and I think the mode of expression and the amount of expression and therefore the amount of information that gets shared does tend to be quite different.
1: Okay, so we can pick
2: that up after the break.
1: Okay, hi, you've been listening to Psych Up Live. We've been talking with Dr. Andrew Smila. He's the author of "Is Masculinity Toxic." We've been talking about that question and what the male dominance definition of masculinity has done in terms of men's impact on other people as well as their own relationships. We're gonna pick it up on the other side of the break and we're gonna be talking about the impact of male-female relationships. Stay with us.
0: Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
2: Beauty is always a reflection of how we're taking care of ourselves from the inside and our business is no different. Building your business brand is a direct reflection of you. In today's competitive landscape, personal and proven leadership skills can ensure that our brands and businesses succeed. Join host Bonnie Bonadeo and
1: visionary guest experts to help you find success. Tune in to beautiful brands inside and
2: out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America
1: Welcome back. We're speaking with Dr. Andrew Smiler. And we left with the question, I was saying, I think that even though men do the side-by-side type of relating with friends and women do the face-to-face, that maybe they're just as intimate. And then I said, I I gave Andrew a story. Um, So my husband was a very big tennis player. And when he would go, I remember one time I said, so when he came back, I said, so what did Harry say about Jane? And he said, what? We were playing tennis. I said, no, but I want to know what he said about Jane. Didn't she have surgery? We were playing tennis. <laughs> uh, so I thought, how? I said, he's your friend. How could you not ask about Jane? He goes, well, he didn't bring it up. I didn't ask it. Okay. So I'm not sure, Andrew, if that means he loves Harry any more than I love my friend, who I, who I might know every detail about her husband's surgery. So what are we saying in terms of intimacy and men, men friends and men, women friends?
2: So, so because of our cultural standards and, and our expectations for boys and men and how we teach them about masculinity and the, way we, the ways we reward them or punish them and, and the dictates of the man box here, there are certain kinds of topics that tend to be either off limits or only get kind of brief mention when two men are together and spending time together, even though they may be dear friends and even best friends. And in, in kind of the short version is that the man box teaches guys to be friends with men in one way, and it teaches them to be friends with women in a different way. They can be, um, and we, we have this, this data even from teenagers, um, researchers Judy Chu and Niobe Wei, Niobe's uh, more recent book is Deep Secrets, we have teenagers today from the last five years who talk about, I want to be more open with my male friends, but I don't know how, and I think mm. it's going to get rebuffed. Um, or I, I think they're going to see me as weak, and I don't want to take that risk. But female you know in in female, female dyads, that dynamic isn't there. So there's greater risk risk taking, if you will. There's greater sharing of emotional concerns, there's greater attention to uh, relationships and and what's going on within other men's relationships. Um, or the the guy's other relationship outside the dyad. Um, so some of those, that kind of question that your husband, that you asked your husband, that doesn't happen for white guys in the U.S.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a very interesting question, and I don't have data on it, but I will tell you in being in practice for over 35 years, many men, and I have as many men, if not more than women, will say, well, I couldn't. I couldn't speak to a man about this. Right. Um, So it it really, there's some, we want more for men. We want want them to have more options in terms of permission to share if they chose to. You know, what it is to mind something that's really worried me, which is when we look at the hookup generation information, I remember Di- uh, Donna Frieda said when she met with the young men in groups, they were ah oh, yeah, hook up. You don't want to know the person. You don't need to. It's just scoring. But when she met with them privately, Andrew, uh-huh. they, they said, I don't want to do this. I just want a girlfriend. Yeah. So you can see that the culture presses down on that wish to be freer uh-huh. about not using dominance and power, about being able to share feelings and thoughts you know, I think the point you're making is a really good one.
2: All right. Thank you. And and again, you know, what the data tell us, you know, year after year and decade after decade, is that most guys don't really conform to the dictates of the man box. They're not trying to to be the alpha male. They don't have any real use for violence or promiscuity in their own lives. Um, but in the presence of other guys they feel like they they need to put on this show. Or at least they need not or at least they can't object to the show if other people are putting it on.
1: Right. Well, you did, the, you, you report this great study in 2003 of undergraduates, asking undergraduates how many partners they would like, sexual partners, in the next 30 days. And the majority of men said zero or one.
2: Yeah. yeah. I mean,
1: <laughs> there it is, Right.
2: Yeah, and that, that's a great study. I, I don't get credit for authoring that. That study was uh, led by David Schmidt, who, if I remember correctly, is at Baylor, but I'm not quite sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's a worldwide study, and we tend to see that number. They, you know, about 25% of undergraduates in the U.S. And these these are guys who are, you know, mostly 18, 19, living away from home for the first time, no real parental supervision. With, you know, lots of other eighteen, nineteen year old potential sexual partners, and twenty five percent of those guys say they want two or more partners in the next thirty days, which means that seventy five percent of guys don't want two or more partners. They want mm-hmm. zero or one. So clearly, most guys not interested, um, yeah, but that yeah. violates our stereotype, um and we kind of don't hear about that or don't know what to do with it.
1: Well, it's interesting because most men, as we're saying, are not, don't want to be sexual players, but everybody wants to watch James Bond. So yeah. it, I mean, it's a kind of vicarious, there's still the vicarious living through and acting in fantasy, the um, the dominant male, the alpha male, who can dominate and who could dominate women. So the question becomes, will that become will that stay that way or now in a me too generation will that start to really ebb because personally when they're asked they don't really want to be james bond
2: right and 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 i think this is a great question and kind of kind of loops us back to the beginning here you know masculinity here in the us has changed not just over the last 120 years that i documented or verbalized at the beginning but you know, throughout our history, we we certainly don't act like the Puritans who were you know on the Mayflower. Um, and it it continues to change. and and some of that response, some of those changes are in response to other social movements like me Too, or to uh, movements like women's equality or the peace and anti-movement, anti-war anti movements that came out of the Vietnam era. Some of those changes are tech, due to technological changes. Um, you know, now that we are in the digital era, part of what we're seeing and have seen is that we don't have nearly as many manufacturing and traditionally male, traditionally masculine jobs as we used to. People talk about as being in a service economy or a post- mm-hmm. post-industrial economy. You know, we've we've trained guys for that industrial workplace, and those are still really the standards of the man box. But now, all of a sudden, guys need need skills for service jobs. They need to be able to kind of read the customer, read the the business client, and understand that. That person's wants and needs before they can even identify them themselves. Like, that's a whole set of, you know, emotional intelligence and mm-hmm. insight skills that we have not emphasized to guys for over the last 50 years in the U.S., but that's what you need to succeed in business today.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the emotional intelligence piece. The one thing it just brought to mind, one, one of the, I made a call, this person's a millennial, and when I said... Uh, what do you think about the Me Too movement in terms of the workplace? He said the workplace is different. Mm-hmm. You know, wi- women women have prominence. It's an accepted fact. Um, it's I think he said I think it's they're going to always be those men, but generally there are many other men who see women as their equal, or in some cases as their boss, and that's okay with them.
2: Yeah and 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 again, we see that in the majority of the the data that are collected in the workplace about these kinds of issues most most men in the workplace today don't have those kinds of sexist beliefs. They don't they believe that women are perfectly able and competent to be bosses. Um, and and most guys will say that they are comfortable having a female boss. Mm-hmm. Uh, but stereotypically, we still think there's some issues there. and and Don Draper from Mad Men certainly had some issues there.
1: <laughs> well, let me ask you this question because we've never had so much porn and we've never had it offered at the rate. It drives the internet, some people say. Right. So at the rate, kids are seeing it very young. Do you think that porn has in some way fostered a rape culture?
2: Wow, that, that's a question for a whole other show. <laughs> okay. uh, I, I, the short answer um, is that most porn is really assumes a male viewer and um, is focused on something that might qualify as heterosexual sex and it certainly it certainly tends to be violent and demeaning towards women right you're watching a lot of it the data from 40 50 years of and kind of what is TV viewing due to attitudes towards violence, what is TV viewing due to do regarding men's attitudes towards women, like assuming that this works the same way, there's lots of reason to believe it does, then yeah, it, it, all, watching all of this porn, especially kind of during the, the formative teen years, certainly contributes to the same kind of attitudes that support rape or support um, taking adva- sexual advantage of women.
1: Actually, when you think that it in too many cases is the sex ed book, it's a real problem, but that's where your other book is so important in terms of speaking to men about dating, sex and dating in um, the 21st century. But it, it comes up with even women, young women who, what they've seen is a real turnoff to them. And actually, right. it, this culture has seen more, more porn, but they are actually never been more anxious about sexual connection.
2: Yeah, it's it's a fascinating juxtaposition between the porn and the whole hookup culture thing, um, and and whether or not polyamory and having multiple partners and being in multiple simultaneous relationships. Like in you know the the current generations, the teens and twenty somethings are being told that they get to rewrite the rules and kind of almost there are no boundaries, but we're. Telling the people with the least experience, right. write the rules. Right. That doesn't make sense.
1: Okay. In the interest of time, I'll ask you the very quick question. Is masculinity toxic? Yes or no? Know.
2: Uh, I am going to go with both yes and no. There are okay. ways in which masculinity clearly harms men as individuals and men's health and men's relationship with other men and men's relationship with women. But at the same time, it does have some good parts that really are helpful for men and promote good qualities.
1: Yeah, yeah. People, people serving together, et cetera, really some good qualities. Thank you so much. Um, Dr. Andrew Smiley, I'm I'm delighted that you came back to the show. Thank you so much for your contributions to understanding boys, men, and masculinity. Your book is really a contribution because it really helps people understand how this definition unfolded, and it also leaves with real hope. I'm I'm, I'm encouraging people to get it because you're really underscoring that more and more men are going to feel entitled to come up with their own definition of masculinity for themselves. So thank you again for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for the kind words and thank you for having me.
1: Okay, I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast on my host site, my website, on the podcast app of iPhones, iTunes, Sketcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, etc. by 6 p.m. tonight. Um, Please feel free to drop me a comment or a question at RadioHostPhilips at gmail.com.